So we receive a call that same night saying La Caravelle has been nominated in the category of most outstanding restaurant in the country, which is the highest award. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is the Champagne Queen. I loved reading her description. She is the Chief Bubble Officer at La Caravelle Wines and Champagnes. She is a legend in the food world. She owns a very famous restaurant together with her husband in New York. And she is so many other things. You're going to hear it all in this episode. Rita Shame, welcome to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'm thrilled to be here. I am fascinated by you. I want to give a quick shout out to our common, my friend and your cousin Rima, who got us together. Yes. My very, very good friend here in Cyprus. And um, whenever she talks about you, I'm fascinated by what you do. You were born in Saudi Arabia. That's what I read. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Uh, my father had uh, work in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're originally from Iraq, but I never lived in, in Iraq because when I was born, my dad had work in Saudi Arabia with the royal family and um, they spent a few years there. So my first five years were spent in, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia with my mom and dad. Do you remember anything? Sadly, not much. Uh, I was so young. I just remember maybe some a couple of tidbits here and there. My parents entertained a lot. They were, you know, with, with all the, the expat community, uh, they used to be frequent hosts of dinners and parties. And I remember being sent to bed. Obviously, I was under five. So when the guests came, it was go to bed. And and uh, I was like pouting. Why can't I join the party? <laughs> so you were already you were already. a party girl then already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no exactly. wonder. No. Anyway, so, it, it was very happy. It was a happy time. That's what I can say for sure. That's fantastic. You went away from uh, Saudi Arabia. Yes. Your yes. parents are Iraqi, but you are Lebanese. I mean, exactly. When time came to go to, um, there's a tradition in our family. All the girls go to this uh, French Catholic boarding school, Les Sœurs de Besançon, which was uh, in Beirut. And then at age five, uh, my parents sent me there as a bo in boarding school at age five. It was not easy, but uh, the, the good thing is that I had family there, including my uncle uh, Vodi and my sister Nimi. And so my uncle Rima, our, our friend who connected us, was my cousin, Uh, that's Rima's uh, father and mother. So I used to stay with them over the weekend and see my sister. So, but it was still, um, and that was an interesting time to be in a boarding school at age five. Your parents are in another country, but they had, you know, it was not much choice. So, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's, that's a little girl. It's it's good that you had family around yes, you, though. Yes, definitely. And Lebanon is very near and dear to my heart. Lebanon is really. Definitely part of me and my heritage. Still to this day, I have, I'm very strongly uh, loyal and attracted to Lebanon. Yeah, I love Lebanon and it's a 20 minute flight from here. Yeah. yeah. Of course, right now it's uh, it's such a sad situation. Very and such sad. A, and uh, it's such a beautiful country full of such beautiful people and hospitality and food. And every, I love everything about Lebanon. Exactly. How long did you stay in, Le in Lebanon? Uh, I stayed until the age of 12, which was about seven years. In the meantime, my parents had uh, 
when my father was doing his work in Saudi Arabia, he traveled throughout the world frequently. And the one country where he was traveling and really fell in love with was Switzerland. Uh, my father was a visionary. He he saw uh, the, the Middle East as a barrel of powder ready to explode early on, already with Iraq uh, after he left it. And then, and then uh, you know, the whole Middle East. So he said, I want to establish uh, my family in, in Geneva, Switzerland, because he saw it as a haven of peace um, and, and, you know, beautiful quality of life and a lot of quality. So he, they moved to Switzerland and they were leaving me in Beirut to keep learning Arabic because the curriculum was both all French and all Arabic in Beirut. So at some point I rebelled and I, and I said, I want to be with you and, and mom, you know, and live in the same country and same city. And so finally they relented and, and um, you know, I was then transferred to Geneva to another Catholic boarding school, but at least I saw them twice a week. So yeah, that, that's when it happened at age 12. So it was Pensionnat Marie-Thérèse in Geneva. Uh, I have wonderful memories. Um, so I, I studied there until the age of 18. And then I went to the university in Geneva, had a um, licence in uh, Sciences Économiques et Sociales, and uh, graduated, then started to work. Um, my first job, I really wanted to work with my father because he was a prominent businessman and an incredible role model. Tough, tough. Uh, but that's the best school. He was so exacting and, um, you know, a lot of strong character, but ethics and, and rigor of work. So that really gave me a wonderful I would say framework for, for my professional life. I guess it's all about discipline, you know, and, and people talk about all this overnight success. That is so, this is a lot of rubbish because uh, there is no overnight success. It's a lot of work, a lot of discipline, a lot of persistence and consistency. And that's what it's all about. I read somewhere when I was uh, preparing for this interview that you liked Le Goutte in uh, Switzerland. Oh, you liked nice. <laughs> Uh, when I was in the boarding school every day at four o'clock, Le Goutet uh, was a, a crispy ballon, a, a roll, I mean, a little roll of crispy bread with a, a um, chocolate bar. To mm -hmm. me, that's like the epitome of simplicity, but so satisfying. I know that because, you know, I'm from Switzerland originally uh -huh. and um, it's what we used to have as well. It's, yeah. you know, in this German, it's called a sprangli because I think, I don't know how the, 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 c'est la branche. It's a little, a little twig, isn't it? The size of a little twig, the piece of chocolate. Yes. And, it's just a bar of chocolate. I mean, it's yes, Yeah. You worked with your father. You, you had studied. How did you become a foodie? I mean, you are, you're a thoroughbred food connoisseur. <laughs> What happened? So it's on two fronts. First of all, I love I love to eat. I'm, I'm an Epicurean, so I love good things. That I was also exposed to wonderful cuisine with my father and and mother. And my mother was an incredible cook, and um, so that already. And then I, when it was time to drink, my father was a Chevalier du Tastevin, the Burgundy Society, and he he you know he made me taste the wine. At first, I was like. <sighs> When I was very young, this tastes so weird. But then he really taught me to appreciate good wine. And um, instantly my palate was, was you know, formed on, with a very good uh, start because I only, you know, only drink wines that are well made. Don't, don't go for quantity and, and, you know, lower quality. Just like drink the best like a collector. And um, that's how it started. But also at some point my father was in the, in the hospitality business. He owned a hotel. 
also the fact that my in the Middle East, as you know, people are very, very hospitable. They love to, to host people in their house. And that I really got that very strong gene. And it followed me to, to this day, actually. Then it went into the, the business itself, especially after I, I married Andre, who's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fast forwarding here. Um, That's fine. We'll go back. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Away. We'll come back. So my, yes, husband, yes. my husband, Andre, uh, Andre Jamais, whose uh, father founded the, the, the Bristol Hotel in Paris. That's how I really got into hospitality. Also, to backtrack a little bit, while we, where we were in Beirut, my sister was married to Albert Sader, who was also a restaurateur. He had a restaurant called L'Express in the heart of Beirut. And I really, I was kind of immersed in hospitality and enjoying every bit of it. So really it was, I like to say it's in the blood, but um, yeah, also yeah, my upbringing. You are so absolutely right about the Middle Eastern hospitality and about all this food. I always feel when I, especially when I go to Lebanon or to, to Jordan, it's it's a food haven. Okay. It's just there are the colors and the tastes and the herbs and the smells and the everything. And, you know, I always, I insist, I'm a, I'm a, a neutral Swiss, so I can say that. In this corner of the Mediterranean, Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Cyprus, Greece, we are all the same. It's the same. It's the same thing. If there was politics, if it wasn't those stupid situations that are created by greedy people, it would be wonderful. It would be. I think food is the great equalizer and the connector. Actually, I have a friend who has a program, a school in Israel to, to shape as summer camps and programs throughout the year, young Israeli students and Palestinian students. So through the connection of food with the Institute Paul Bocuse, so it's all, you know, promoting peace in, in a normal way, in a really organic way, I would say, putting all aside all the, you know, the, the hatred and all the not terrible things that don't need to be here. Absolutely not. And people say couples who cook together stay together. It connects people doing the working in the kitchen. It's it's and it's I think it's also very sensual. It is, it is. I mean, cooking is is a very, I think it's a multidisciplinary um thing to do because you also have culture, you have history, geography, and, and also it's an art, it's an art form. Yeah. So you express, you know, you express yourself with the cooking and you just the fact that you enjoy it. It's just um, all of that is one of the unique things in life. When you were living in Switzerland and before you met your husband or, or after you met your husband, how often did you go to Lebanon? I went frequently, at least every summer and maybe another time during the year. We used to spend the so summer. You are in Lebanon. Yeah, very like connected. A, it was like a just a very special place, like a kind of a unique place. East meets West. And I think in Lebanon, there's such magic in this country. The people, the food, the, the sites, the, the hospitality is a major part of it. And uh, to this day, I think it's a country that, that has a magic to it. Sadly, it's in a very dire situation. And I do hope and pray that, that you know, they are able to find a way to turn the corner and bring us back uh, the beautiful Lebanon that we, we've known. Yeah, I really hope so. Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East. And, you know, at the times I came to Cyprus in the 80s. And when I came to Cyprus, um, it was the craziest time of the civil war. uh, uh, Beirut airport had just been bombed by the Israelis and, uh, and was closed. And 
Middle East Airlines was operating out of Larnaca Airport and there was a boat going to Junia every day. I was very young at the time and I was fascinated by these Lebanese women, the way they were having tea parties and the way they were dressed. I was really, really impressed. Oh, yes. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty sophisticated. They know how to do it. They do. They do. They do. I mean, Lebanese people are just very special uh, people because they're also, first of all, so resilient and they're smart and they they adapt themselves. They open to other cultures because you start by speaking, you know, two, three languages right away, Arabic, French and English right away. So that gives an opening and, and you know, all the qualities that, that we mentioned before, the hospitality, the grace and the generosity. And a real Lebanese speaks all these three languages in one phrase. Exactly. Oh, my God. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. So Rita, tell me, what, when did you go to, the, to America and why did you go to America? The first time I set a foot in America was with my husband at our honeymoon. Because Andre, my husband, had spent a year in, in New York as a representative of his family's uh, Bristol Hotel in the 70s, early 70s. And then I heard all these stories. My father we used to do business with America. So I just had America was like something up there that I really was striving to, to know and to discover. And when we got married, we decided to take our honeymoon and go to, to the U.S. and go to several cities and, do you know, a beautiful tour. And uh, it's very interesting because when we landed in JFK, the first, very first time I set a foot in this country, on the road from JFK to Manhattan, it's not the most glamorous ride of all, at all, actually. I said to Andre, this is the country I want to live in. And he's like, whoa, who's this crazy woman I just married? He said, you haven't seen anything yet. I was like, uh-uh. I really, there's something in this country. Uh, I mean, as much as I adore Switzerland and living in Switzerland, but there was something in America that I just couldn't put my finger on, but it was very, I felt it in my instinct. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, it happened later after we we got married in 78, 77. And in 78, uh, the family hotel, the Bristol was sold. So we decided to, we had to move out of, of the hotel and we stayed a year in Paris, but Andre was miserable. He was like a fish out of water because he was actually born in the hotel, in a hotel room at the Bristol. So you can imagine to all of a sudden in your adult age to be taken out of that. So, you know, we looked at each other and we said, you know what? We don't have children. Let's just take our suitcases and go. Immigrants, we're just going to go to America. So we just uh, arrived here in, in January 1980 and uh, never left. That's amazing. What a, what a decision. Yes. I mean, that takes a lot of guts to do something it like did. that. I mean, both our families were up in arms. You're crazy. You're unconscious. What are you doing? You don't know. Like, what's going to happen? You know, we we, uh, we had a project to, to for someone to sponsor Andre for the green card and a, and a job opportunity. So we said, let's go. We just rent an apartment. We come with our suitcase for two months and uh, we put all our stuff in storage in Paris. And um, we arrive in New York. And after a week, we discovered that these two prospects are not really uh, part of reality. So we sat down, we looked at each other and we said, OK, we want to stay here. Who do you know? Who do I know? How do we make this happen? So Andre, through his hotel connections, he reconnected with the, the family, the Tish family and, and the Lowe's. And one of the, the managers there, Udo Schlentrich, actually, I think he was from Austria, if I'm not mistaken, or that he has known in the past, told him, you know what, um, come to New York and then we'll, we'll 
you know, uh, have you give you a job at the at the Regency Hotel and we can sponsor you for your green card. So that's how it started. That's how it started. And when did you open the restaurant? When did you open La Caravelle? So we actually didn't open the restaurant. We, we bought the restaurant because the restaurant was opened in 1960 by two Frenchmen, Fred Decré and Robert Maison. And when, when André got his, his, the green card, so he was looking to open a restaurant. So he would take, he had met Robert Maison and uh, Robert said, I'll, I'll come with you and advise you on the lay of the land and, you know, the spaces, the neighborhoods and all that. I should say one interesting thing is that thing is that Andre, when he came to America back then in the 70s, the first restaurant he set a foot in was La Caravelle. How interesting. Right? A little twist. Of it's yeah. <laughs> it meant to be, I guess. Yeah. Yes. So at any rate, uh, Robert kept uh, all the projects they were looking at. like, no, that's not good. No, no, this should be better. This should be better. Basically, he nixed everything. And then one day he said to him, okay, let's have lunch. And he told him, you know what? I want to retire from La Caravelle. Would you buy my shares, my half of the restaurant? So that's how it happened. Uh, first half in 84. And then uh, André had a partner, uh, Roger Fessaguet, who was the chef at the opening of the restaurant in 1960 and had become a partner later. So they, they co-operated the restaurant for four years. And in 88, um, they, they, André bought out uh, uh, Roger. And uh, that's where I, I started to get involved because prior to that, I was busy making babies. Um, so <laughs> uh, that's how in 88, uh, became sole proprietors of the restaurant and the adventure started. Tell me a little bit about that adventure, because as far as I know, it was a very famous restaurant and, and a very established restaurant. But did you have any famous people coming to eat at your restaurant? Oh, yes. Countless uh, people. I should say that when the restaurant opened before our time in 1960, um, there was a very, the, the major restaurant in New York was Le Pavillon. And this is the genesis of all the French restaurants that opened in New York. And uh, the two founders of La Caravelle used to work at Le Pavillon. So I'm saying this because in 1960, when they opened La Caravelle, it was supposed to be a little bistro, you know, an easy restaurant. And then the Kennedy family, who was frequently patron, you know, patrons of, of Le Pavillon, they followed uh, Robert and Fred Decret, and they said to them, if you open, we'll be there. So this is 1960, September 1960. And in November 1960 were the elections, and who gets elected? John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how that propelled the restaurant, you know, to write the top of the top with everybody coming there, the glitterati and the, and all the, the you know, uh, show business and, and politicians and business people, etc. So that's how the restaurant was instantly, you know, promoted to number one in the country because the Kennedy family, it was like their dining room there. And wow. Yeah. That was quite a, quite a, <laughs> the best PR you can get. And then eventually when Jackie Kennedy needed a chef at the white house, as you know, she was a great Francophile. When she needed a chef at the white house, she naturally turned to La Caravelle and the owners and say, can you find a chef, groom him, teach him all the dishes we like to eat. And then we'll place them at the white house. And this is what happened. They brought. That I didn't read that anywhere, even though I read a lot about you. <laughs> I'm glad there are things you can discover. <laughs> oh, there is. And one thing I should mention, which we come back to later, is that one of the dishes that the Kennedy family was very fond of and was obviously on the menu of La Caravelle was called Poulard au Champagne. Uh, Poulard and became Poulard Maison Blanche. 
White House pula, you know. Sure. So, uh, guess what the sauce was? Champagne sauce. There we go. So There's something I- about that champagne, Rita. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, when did you get involved? I mean, what did you do at the restaurant? What was your position? I mean, obviously you were the owner, but uh, did you you didn't cook, did you? No, I didn't cook. I did a lot of things, but I didn't cook. Cooking was reserved at home for my family. Okay. But Andre was managing the front of the house and then the business in general. And given that I have a business background, did the you know all the back office work? I managed that the, the PR, and I would say a full time job, which is dealing with chefs. Mm-hmm. Takes the mm-hmm. special skills and uh, they are, are they prima as as much prima donnas as people say? Um, it, it depends on the individual character. The answer is yes most of the time, but you, you have to understand that chefs are artists under a lot of pressure. So you know what that means. It's 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 mm-hmm. very first of all physically it's very demanding, and then and then mentally it's very it's a high pressure job. You have to produce and synchronize and, and the stakes are high when you have especially important people in the dining room and any any guest is important, obviously. But when everybody comes at the same time and you want everything to be as good as possible, you have to manage the team, manage, you know, it's it's a tough job, but they're they're wonderful. You know, they're wonderful people, very creative. And yes, it takes a special, like walking on eggshells. Sometimes you have to be a cop, you have to be a counselor, you have to be a nanny. So, um, yeah, uh, because I mean, as you say, every guest is important. But when you have a person with a lot of influence yeah. and this person's food is not the way the, they imagined it, yeah. it things can go wrong. It I mean, it happen. can have a big impact. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what was the worst that happened in uh, in your time at La Caravelle? I would say not really an incident, but the roughest time I would say is right after 9-11. That was a very, very tough time. Because, you know, we lost some of our, our, our staff. One of our pastry uh, cooks was um, Dan Libretti. He was really a, a New York firefighter who was had a passion for cooking pastry. And he was working with us in addition to his job. And he was one of the ones who was called right away among the first trucks for, for 9-11. So that was, I mean, the whole tragedy was... I think it was a collective trauma that that uh, probably I would say that was the roughest time that we had at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the best. Oh the my God, there's so many, so many amazing times, you know, with the Kennedy family, even though when we came, they were no longer obviously at the White House. The Kennedy family, we had um, wonderful guests. We had uh, Salvador Dali, uh, Pavarotti, you name it. We had so many very, very interesting people. The fashion was very important uh, at La Caravelle. Uh, Oscar de la Renta, um, you know, everybody from that era. Uh, You also had um, uh, Mrs. Astor. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a a very, very frequent guest at La Caravelle. And in fact, she decided to uh, fund the construction of um, the, um, you know, Lincoln Center. Her her pavilion was... At, at La Caravelle, she decided to to fund that. And uh, so a lot of interesting moments. Martha Stewart, uh, also the day she created her magazine, this uh, right after signing, they came to La Caravelle. So we have some very interesting, uh, momentous occasions. The Hermes family, uh, the Chanel team. It was, it was very, yeah, very interesting. And back in the days, we didn't want to take pictures not to invade the privacy of our guests which means that we don't always have all the photos that we have in our memories. But 
That is the problem. I mean, no, it's not a problem. It's it's the wrong word because I always, I was a tour guide when I was young for 11 years and I traveled all over the world and I had to have very, very few pictures because we didn't, we weren't really allowed to take our cameras with us exactly. because we were tour leaders. We didn't have time to take pictures. Right. I met, I met the mother Teresa once oh. at her orphanage in, uh, in Calcutta. And I always think, how cool would it be to have a selfie with Mother Teresa? But, you know, as you say, it's also for those people, for those people who are always in the limelight, they come to a restaurant to relax, don't exactly. they? They don't want to be bothered again. Exactly. But I totally get you. I know exactly what you're talking about, because it would be nice to have a, a little picture to show all these things. Yeah, absolutely. Like the time when Robin Williams came to, to dinner, we had wonderful interactions with him. He was just very, very special human being and uh, we, we he signed autographs for our sons and our pastry chef did a special dessert for him and he a hazelnut with a long spike of caramel and he was you know did it did it you know his movie good morning vietnam so he was like good morning vietnam and it was just magical but no photo Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's in your heart. It's in our it? heart and our memories. Yeah, that's what I always say. It's in our and 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 we have stories to tell about all these things. But it must have been a fascinating time for you. In two thousand and four, La Caravelle closed. Yes, right. Yes, actually, it was a consequence, a late consequence of nine eleven, of September eleven, uh, because after nine eleven, the the I think society changed and people's values changed. They, first of all, a lot of people wanted to eat something comforting in their neighborhood. And therefore, the, the whole notion of fine dining was redefined at that time. We were a classic French restaurant. We did introduce some uh, contemporary dishes because we, when we had these talented chefs, you have to give them a, an opportunity to be there, to, to show their creations and you know, express their talent. So we were able to have that. However, we were bound by what, you know all the parameters in our DNA, which was French classic, meaning we needed a certain dress code. Um, our captains were wearing tuxedos, which was the norm in the 60s. But as time went by, it became a little less, I would say, you know, that part of formal was not as desirable. And we, there's only so much we could go, so far we could go in relaxing the code without being hard to, like, who are you? altering ourselves. Mm -hmm. If people yeah, can't figure you out, you have to remain true to your identity. Uh, you evolve as much as you can, but you cannot pass a certain point because then you, you will no longer be who you are. And we decided yeah. to, you know, we decided with the pressures of business, having had it for 20 years, we said, you know what, it's time. So we did that and um, we had a How beautiful exit. Yeah, we had a beautiful exit because we, just before announcing, the night before we were announcing that we were going to close, I received a call from, you know, the James Beard Foundation, which is very important here. It's like the Oscars of, of the restaurant world. So we received a call that same night saying La Caravelle has been nominated in the category of most outstanding restaurant in the country, which is the highest award. And at first I thought it was a joke. I said, oh, come on, this is not, no, not the time. This, it's not a joke. It's really happening. This was in March. The awards are in May and you, you, you have to stay in business. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so there goes the announcement. And uh, when it was time to, uh, you know, the, for the awards, we were there 
in a way, fortunately, we didn't win because it would have been tough to win and say, okay, we're first to close. That's right. So hello, goodbye. But it was the best way to exit. So that same day I saw uh, the, the wonderful journalist uh, Florence Fabricon and I, I talked to her the next day and, and we announced the closing. But we gave the people, we gave our guests 10 days. We, you know, we say we have, these are our last 10 days. And it, we were so packed. Everybody came and it was a beautiful exit because instead of, uh, you know, um, mourning the death, we celebrated the life of the restaurant and gave people opportunities to come and dine a last time there. That's beautiful. And I guess it's, it's was, it was the, the best way to do it. But you were saying something, something before about an identity of a restaurant and that you, you can expend a certain amount, but you have to keep an identity. And what do you say about all these restaurants? There are some restaurants or many in the world. They serve everything. You know, they have so many things on their menu. Yeah. And I always think it can't be good. How is it possible to have all these different dishes? Yeah. What do you think about these places? Well, I think, you know, that um, when you have a very large menu that goes all over the place and you don't really have an, an identity or, or who, who you are uh, in there, it, it's hard to perceive. But, you know, sometimes if it's uh, for a large number of people, that, that formula might work. But in our line uh, where we were in our category, we, we had to have, you have to have a focus. People have to know who you are and what they're going to have when they come to your restaurant. I think yeah. it's very important. So Rita, when you cook at home, what do you cook? What is your favorite uh, cuisine? I go back to Lebanese cuisine and Iraqi. That's my, uh, those are my go-to. Right now, my audience is very small. It's just Andre and me. <laughs> <laughs> because our, our sons uh, are all happily married and now, but when we gather, uh, there's a couple of dishes that they love, and I just I'm thrilled to cook that. There's a, a recipe of a lemon and and a saffron chicken with a yellow basmati rice, saffron basmati rice that everybody's enamored with. So this is a ritual in our family. Yummy. Yeah, yummy. Have you ever been to Iraq? I was in Iraq um, two weeks when I was four years old. That's it. Okay, that doesn't count. It doesn't, doesn't count at all. <laughs> I was saying to Rima the other day, I want to go to Iraq because, you know, Iraq is the country between the Euphrates and the Tigris. It's the beginning of the world. Maybe we should arrange. Would you come if, if Rima and I arrange? Uh, I, I would love to. I don't know how it is being a former Iraqi citizen, if I can go there, but it would be a dream because I'm very, even though I have not lived in Iraq, it's really I'm my origin and I'm very proud of it. And very, you know, I, I think you have to, when you acknowledge and live your heritage, it's the best thing to do because it's you. It's like nothing beats knowing exactly who you are, where you come from, as far as civilization, as far as um, ethnicity and origin. It's, it's the birth of, of civilization. And we also were Chaldeans. So that's also the origin of Christianism. So all that is very important. Um, it is. And it's so it's a country so misunderstood. Oh, yes. These parts of the world are just so beautiful. I was, I went funny enough for the first time, even though I live 40 minutes away, I went to Jordan last autumn Ah. and oh my God, I totally fell in love. It's a a wonderful civilization. It is. But after you closed the restaurant, you kept the champagne business. Yes, exactly. The champagne was actually created in 1998 while we still had the restaurant only for our guests as a kind of an extra amenity of hospitality. 
it was our label and it was produced obviously in Champagne and it was only for our guests for consumption in the restaurant. So after the restaurant closed, I thought we thought we were going to stop everything. And then our guests and friends and family said, hey, Rita, why don't you continue the Champagne? It was a daunting thought because, you know, as far as branding goes, it's a a brand extension from a restaurant to a standalone brand. Um, That was very, uh, it was a challenging and kind of almost scary uh, project. But I did not want to leave the world of hospitality. And I thought this would be a perfect way to uh, stay in the hospitality. Also, talk about branding. I had Lac Aravel on my forehead all over. So if you remove that, who am I? (laughs) So you're, as you say, the chief bubble officer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and nothing, nothing beats the self-appointed C-suite title. And that works. I mean, you do supply restaurants in the U.S. with that. Yes, name. definitely. Yes, wow. it, it works because I'm I'm still in that wonderful world that I'm, you know, that I'm. I feel I belong to, and it's an it's a group of people that's incredibly generous and warm and welcoming and supportive. You see restaurateurs supporting each other like in no other industry, you know, peers, they're peers, they're not. Obviously in a way, everybody's a competitor, but there's room for everyone with your style and, and your identity. So it's, um, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I think there is room for everyone in the world, no matter what you do. I think competition exactly. is something good and, and very often also misunderstood. And, and uh, I think the worst emotion that you can have in life is envy because that yeah. stops you from being successful. When you are happy for other people, you will do well as well. Exactly. And, and you know, that's a very good point because it's one of my big, my big uh, mantras in life is just be positive and kind. Basically, if you want to sum it up and, and when you do that, you attract like people. Yes. I also, yeah, def, despite the fact that we have La Caravelle uh, Champagne and, and wine, I say we have a Bordeaux. I really, I'm fascinated and just so enamored with Champagne, the region, the wines, the people, any brand. You'll see on my feed, I'm fortunate to be able to, to enjoy many other brands of Champagne. And I, th- I find it such a beautiful art form. So I think it's magic in there. And you often hear me talk about a lot of other brands because, because I love I love champagne. You're definitely my kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> now, <So are> you. <laughs> tell me, um, I want to talk about your son, Nicolas. Nicolas. Yes. Mm-hmm. He started a company. Well, first it was just a salad shop, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I remember Rima telling me about it. And um, we went when the kids and I used to go to New York quite a lot. We went to the one at Bryant Park, which was about, I don't know, yeah. three, four or five years ago. But that business became big, didn't it? Sweet greens, it like it a dream. Definitely. You know, it's uh, the reality is three students in, in Georgetown. We're tired of not having healthy but good dining options. It was either healthy and boring or not so good or good but rich and not easy to live with. So they decided to to open something that served what they like to eat, basically full meal salads. And they opened this tiny little shop, which is uh, 50 square meters um, in the heart of Georgetown. It's interesting enough, it was a little little white house with a green roof on M Street. Um, and uh, the, the the rest is history. It's just caught on, um, and now they have. I'm not sure of the exact number because it changes every day. Uh, around 150 units throughout the U.S. 
and it, they went public on on New York Stock Exchange in November. I mean, it's really we're so proud. And to this day, every time I eat a sweet green salad, I feel so good mm. because it, it. I think it feeds more than the stomach. I think it feeds really the soul. The, exactly, it's locally sourced. It's it's done with love and care, and it's just um, it just works. It's so good, and we're so proud of our son. Nicola and I mean his brothers too are are also uh, very accomplished in their own fields. So, but he stayed in the in the family kind of in the family passion in the family business. Yes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was fascinated by this whole story and and that uh, this is really this is the American dream, isn't it? This yes. is the, the the proof that it's still possible to start small and to to make something with it. Of course, yeah. this is extremely big. I mean, the fact that they have so many outlets is fascinating. Yeah, it's good. And also, it's a beautiful immigrant story. Yes. Because all three partners, Nicolas is obviously, he's a French, he's a Swiss, he's Iraqi, Lebanese, I mean, all that put together. Hello. Um, he's alone. One, one. And then uh, uh, Nate, uh, Nathaniel Rue is, is uh, Chinese and Mexican. And then uh, Jonathan Neiman is, is Persian. Uh, so uh, Persian uh, Jewish people, but they live in LA. So it's just a fantastic cultural and and you know mix and it's just a beautiful immigrant story the american dream we're going to put the link for sweet green in the co- in in the show notes and and uh, your link to the champagne and everything else now um i also want to ask you Rita, where is your favorite place to go on holidays to where do you like to travel to except lebanon Ah, okay. <laughs> Excellent, Lebanon. Well, there are several, and I don't really want to rank them, but I'll, I'll just uh, name them. I obviously France. France is 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 gorgeous. The south of France, Paris, the Loire Valley, Burgundy. I mean, there's just Champagne region. There are so many areas in France. Then enamored with Japan. I've been to Japan seven times, and I'm a huge Japanophile. I'm lucky to have developed beautiful friendships there. I adore their food, their culture, their aesthetic. It's just a very special country for me. Uh, Another country that I discovered that I completely fell in love with was Mexico. Mexico is extraordinary. I have been to Mexico four times and, and still dying to go because it's an enormous country. There's so many things to, to, to see that vibrant culture. And I mean, it enriches the soul when you visit countries like that. Yeah, that's so true. I have a daughter who um, who is a foodie. She studied at the Ecole Hotelier de Lausanne and she developed this food interest. And wherever she goes, she takes a cooking class and she spent five weeks in Iran uh, just before COVID and did a cooking class there and she, and, and generally wherever. And I, I love that about her because she also went to Mexico and she was telling me the same thing. It's so, it's not, you know, it, it's not just one thing, Mexico, it's a lot, it's big. There is a lot to see. Real mosaic. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. The culture is just, a, and each region has its own identity. It was, um, yeah, my, my uh, first trip there was in uh, to Tequila, the actual town named Tequila. It was extraordinary, extraordinary. Just uh, I'll never forget. Not to mention that other than Champagne and, and Burgundy and, and Bordeaux wine, I love Tequila. So that was... Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. Time is passing very quickly, or as I always say, time flies when you're having fun. We are coming to the end of this uh, of this lovely interview. I really, really enjoy talking to you. Any last words or any last advice? What should somebody know who likes to cook? What is your secret to... Uh, what is your secret sauce? My secret sauce, I mean, it goes for the wine and the food is 
in addition to be happy and kind, is know what you like. You know, learn your taste and then get those things that make you happy. Like a style of wine or a type of cuisine, it has to make you happy. That's the ultimate criteria. Not just eat things because other people eat them. Exactly. I mean, it's interesting to discover. Also, another thing we learn at every age. It's never too late to learn. So open your mind and open your palate. And yeah, but if you find what you like, especially in wine and, and champagne uh, taste, it's the key. That's the key. This wine will be delicious to you because you like it. It makes you happy. That's the end of the day. That's the that's the, what we're looking for. Fantastic. Rita Shame, it was an absolute delight to have you on Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delightful conversation. And uh, I hope to see you soon in Cyprus because it's in, in the books to come and see Cyprus. Well, when you, you come, come to Cyprus, I want to meet you when you come to Cyprus. But otherwise, I'll just have to come to New York or, or I don't know, maybe in Beirut or in Baghdad. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me. Thank All the best. You. Cheers. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.